Welcome to Health and Wealthness, where your hosts, Emily Weigel and Hannah Kahn, discuss pressing and trending topics about health and wealth that everyone should know about. After Hannah's in-depth analysis of opioids and their chemical compositions, let's now delve into the business side of things. In this episode, we will discuss big pharmaceutical companies and their over-the-top marketing schemes that made the opioid epidemic what it is today. Although we are discussing quite sensitive and heavy topics, we hope you enjoy tuning in and that you learn a thing or two about the mad minds behind this epidemic. To start us out, I want to recognize the risk of crime. Within the opioid epidemic, there is an obvious split between the illegal and legal business practices. I want to start out by focusing on the legal side of the business of opioids, which starts with the first wave of the epidemic of prescription opioids. So with the opioid epidemic being a trending headline almost every day, we see a lot about a particular family that has ties with not only the epidemic, but also their pharmaceutical company. This is the Sackler family. What is their story here? How did they come to be? And what can you tell us about their impact from the start? Well, let's give a little historical context. Arthur Sackler was a New York-based psychiatrist, and in 1952, he purchased a small company called Purdue Frederick. This company was established in 1892 and originally sold patent medicines like snake oil and other Chinese medicines. Arthur appointed his two brothers to head the company as he had goals to devote himself to the marketing department. His mindset was to spend more money in order to make more money. This was a make or break for him, and he dedicated his entire career to transforming how people viewed and interpreted medicine. Arthur was not just into marketing, though. He was an avid art collector and actually amassed the largest Chinese art collection in the world, which was later donated to the Smithsonian. In the early Purdue days, their first big seller was a drug called Librium, aka Valium, which treats anxiety and alcohol withdrawal by enhancing the body's natural production of GABA. In Arthur's effort to reimagine ways to promote this drug, he came up with the idea that Librium was prescribed in order to treat psychic tension, which basically just meant stress. But due to his imagination, Librium became the first drug to break $100 million in sales, which then posthumously earned Arthur his place in the Medical Advertising Hall of Fame. In the 1980s, Purdue saw success with an opioid called MS-Contin, which was solely prescribed by oncologists for cancer patients. The drug was formulated so that it had a buffer and was a slow release, which meant that it stopped its users from feeling euphoric effects too quickly after taking it, and therefore prevented addiction. Purdue made a decent amount of money from MS-Contin, but not a crazy amount since it was targeted toward just cancer patients. In 1986, there was a 38-patient study published by two doctors that found that long-term opiate usage was safe for patients who did not have a history of drug abuse and that the rate of addiction for opiates was less than 1%. This generation of Sackler men was questionable and quirky, but they weren't as awful as the person who was to succeed them. In 1987, Arthur Sackler died and his brothers gained his one-third of the company. Now, this is where Richard Sackler comes into the picture. He was Raymond's son and Arthur's nephew. He started working at Purdue as his father's assistant, but then soon moved into the research and development department. Friends and colleagues recount that Richard was very into marketing, just like his late uncle. They said he was, quote, testy, eccentric, with ardent, relentless ambitions, end quote. 
So this successor is where we see a change? Yes, so in R&D, Richard ended up focusing on the commercial side rather than the research. Bad stats had been coming out about addiction and opioids, but Richard refused to listen. He wanted to know what else could we use the content system for. So in 1995, OxyContin was approved by the FDA and launched. This is where things went downhill. At the launch party, Richard decided to compare OxyContin to a natural disaster. He said, quote, The launch of OxyContin tablets will be followed by a blizzard of prescriptions that will bury the competition. The prescription blizzard will be deep, dense, and white, end quote. I see this launch as a major turning point in the business that Purdue was doing. At this point, Richard wasn't concerned about patient care. He only cared about the business of the drug. At the time, doctors were looking for an effective and long-lasting painkiller that did not prompt addiction. They wanted something weaker than morphine, but that would still do the job. So, Purdue ran some focus groups to see if doctors would be okay with prescribing OxyContin, but most docs said no. Before OxyContin was released, the predecessor opioid was MS-Cotton. Users of this drug were able to crush and extract pure oxycodone, which would allow them to expedite the euphoric properties. With the launch of OxyContin, however, Richard told his sales staff to lie to doctors and say that crushing and extracting could not be done with OxyContin, even though internal studies within Purdue said otherwise. The Sackler family, under the reign of Richard, was the reason the first wave of the opioid epidemic started. What ultimately made business boom? So, In 1997, two years after the launch, there was a bit of unease sensed from some of the Purdue execs. Michael Cullen stated in an email to Richard, quote, Since oxycodone is perceived as being a weaker opioid than morphine, it has resulted in oxycontin being used much earlier for non-cancer pain. Physicians are positioning this product where Percocet, hydrocodone, and Tylenol with codeine have traditionally been used. It is important that we be careful not to change the perception of physicians towards oxycodone when developing promotional pieces, symposia, review studies, articles, etc. End quote. Sackler responded to this saying, I think you have the issue well at hand. The company head of sales, Michael Friedman, also emailed Richard around the same time and said, quote, it would be extremely dangerous at this early stage in the life of the product to make physicians think the drug is stronger or equal to morphine. We are well aware of the view held by many physicians that oxycodone is weaker than morphine. I do not plan to do anything about that, end quote. Sackler responded saying, I agree with you. Is there a general agreement or are there some holdouts? Throughout the multitude of emails sent in 1997 amongst execs, the decision at the end of the day was made by Richard Sackler. He supported the effort to conceal the true strength of OxyContin from doctors. Prescriptions and sales were on an exponential upward track. So why reveal the truth? Here are some stats from PubMed. Quote, Purdue's promotion of OxyContin for the treatment of non-cancer-related pain contributed to a nearly tenfold increase in OxyContin prescriptions for this type of pain, from about 670,000 in 1997 to about 6.2 million in 2002, whereas prescriptions for cancer-related pain increased about fourfold during the same period, end quote. 
Another stat found that, quote, sales escalated from $44 million, which is 316,000 prescriptions dispensed, in 1996 to a 2001 and 2002 combined sales of nearly $3 billion, which is over 14 million prescriptions, end quote. All of this information from inside emails was exposed in a lawsuit in Kentucky against Purdue in 2015. Sackler's lawyers promptly had an explanation as to why this could not be considered fraud. They said, quote, Sackler supports that the company accurately disclosed the potency of OxyContin to the healthcare providers. He takes great care to explain that the drug's label made it clear that OxyContin is twice as potent as morphine. Still, it had made a determination to avoid emphasizing OxyContin as powerful cancer pain drug out of a concern that non-cancer patients would be reluctant to take a cancer drug, end quote. This basically just says that they didn't lie. They just didn't emphasize the truth. How did Purdue effectively market the drug to doctors then? And how did these doctors get patients to take these drugs? So, in the late 1990s, Purdue started their war on pain. They paid millions of dollars to doctors that supported prescribing opioids to patients with chronic pain. By 2003, almost half of the doctors prescribing OxyContin were primary care physicians. PubMed stated that, quote, some experts were concerned that primary care physicians were not sufficiently trained in pain management or addiction issues. Primary care physicians, particularly in a managed care environment of time constraints, also had the least amount of time for evaluation and follow-up of patients with complicated chronic pain, end quote. Once doctors were on board with prescribing to a wider clientele, Purdue would ask doctors to implement this strategy. While patients were in office, doctors would ask to rate their pain on a 10-point scale. The goal here was to, quote, attach an emotional aspect to a non-cancer pain. This would hopefully cause doctors to treat it more seriously and aggressively, end quote. AKA, this just meant prescribe more OxyContin. But the thing is, there is no objective measure of their pain based on this 10-point scale. Doctors were convinced by Big Pharma to prescribe more OxyContin to people who did not necessarily need it since their pain was not objective. Purdue took advantage of the subjectiveness of chronic pain. Wow, that's awful to hear. So how did the patients react once they actually started taking the powerful medicine? Oxycontin was marketed to last 12 hours, which would be enough coverage to last the patient through the night and would allow them to sleep peacefully. But most patients reported that they only really got about 6 to 8 hours of relief, which on average is a little more than half of what the marketed time was. Because they weren't receiving the full amount of time marketed to them, patients would take more OxyContin, which meant that they would run through their prescriptions faster and they would end up calling their doctors in agony saying they needed more, which was a true red flag within addiction. Purdue's response to this trend amongst patients was not to increase the frequency of prescriptions, but to encourage doctors to increase the dosage. And at this point, Doctors were becoming concerned about the opioids causing euphoria, but Purdue continued to deny that that was possible. Wow, that's very messed up. But what about the sales? 
Was Purdue making a lot of money at this point? So, an analysis of their early sales numbers, from 1996 to 2001, prescriptions within the United States went from 300,000 to 6 million. You might think, wow, that is an upgrade. But Richard Sackler was not happy. Michael Friedman, the company head of sales who I mentioned earlier, reported that in 1999, they were making more than $20 million in a week. Sackler responded to this number by saying, quote, Sales were not so great. After all, if we are to do $900 million this year, we should be running at $75 million per month. So it looks like this month could be $80 or $90 million. Blah. Humbug. Yawn. Where was I? End quote. Which actually made me laugh so hard. His word choice and indifference to these numbers is baffling to me. So, by 2001, Purdue held more than half of the market share of long-acting opioids, which is exactly why I felt that it was important to focus on this particular pharmaceutical company, because although there were some obvious competitors, Purdue was the strongest runner in the opioid game. 2001 was also the first year that the annual sales of OxyContin reached over $1 billion, which meant that in the span of five years, OxyContin sales went from $48 million per year to $1 billion per year. Those numbers are insane. Yeah, I agree. And Richard wasn't even satisfied. So what happened from here? How did the increasing prescriptions create such an epidemic? Were there a lot of opioid-related deaths at that time? Yeah, there were. In 2001, there were about eight drug overdose deaths for every 100,000 Americans. By 2010, that number almost doubled, and there were 15 deaths per 100,000. An article from the CDC states, quote, In 2014, opioids were involved in 28,647 deaths, or 61% of all drug overdose deaths. The rate of opioid overdoses has tripled since 2000. The 2014 data demonstrate that the United States opioid overdose epidemic includes two distinct but interrelated trends. A 15-year increase in overdose deaths involving prescription opioid pain relievers and a recent surge in illicit opioid overdose deaths, driven largely by heroin, end quote. So the people that were dying were overdosing on heroin, but most of them were initially hooked on opioid painkillers, as Hannah has talked about in our first episode. But we'll get into heroin involvement a little later. So Purdue came in and said this death rate information was completely unbalanced, and they basically attributed the death rate and displaced the blame on the people who were quote-unquote drug addicts. Richard made a statement regarding the deaths and said, this is not too bad. It could have been worse. Richard also came up with a solution that he proposed in a company-wide email. He said, quote, We have to hammer on the abusers in every way possible. They are the culprits and the problem. They are reckless animals, end quote. Later, in a Massachusetts lawsuit, it was stated that, quote, Richard followed this strategy for the rest of his career, collect millions from selling addictive drugs, and blame the terrible consequences on the people who became addicted. By their misconduct, the Sacklers have hammered Massachusetts families in every way possible, and the stigma they used as a weapon made the crisis worse, end quote. So, basically, get people addicted to a drug, encourage criminalization of that drug abuse, and attack the drug users. It was an endless cycle that made people less likely to get help. 
more likely to buy more drugs, and it removes the blame from Richard Sackler. It was an elaborate scheme to try to keep numbers up. Sales were up, prescriptions were up, deaths were up. And this is where I thought of the saying, all things that go up must come down. So did they come down? Well, kind of, but not really. Purdue still maneuvered their way into staying at the top. By 2010, people were starting to catch on to their schemes and they were realizing how dangerous OxyContin really was. So Purdue had a little freak out moment and they decided to rebrand. The company released a new formulation of OxyContin that was supposed to be harder to snort and inject. They also rebranded as a leader in abuse deterrent technology, which coincided with two major developments. The increasing number of addicts unable to afford OxyContin because of its high street price and the fact that OxyContin was nearing the end of its patent life. On April 16th, 2013, their patents were to expire, but like I said, they had a way of staying at the top. Purdue decided to convince the FDA that it would be safer for them to keep control of the market. They reasoned that there had already been enough damage done by these drugs, and it would be way too risky to allow other players to come into the game. The FDA ended up siding with Purdue, and they banned anyone else from selling a generic OxyContin. Not to get too into hypotheticals, but is there a chance that the situation would have been made better if OxyContin was available on a generic market? So, although there isn't much information online about the price elasticity of OxyContin, in a PubMed article about the price elasticity of heroin, they estimated the elasticity to be around 0.8. In the case of OxyContin becoming a generically distributed drug, I would guess that it would still stay priced inelastic since users will always have a demand regardless of price. You mentioned heroin. But Big Pharma wasn't selling heroin. Where did these other drugs come in? That brings me to my next segment, the second wave of the epidemic with the rising popularity of heroin. An article from PubMed found, quote, in asking whether people who use heroin begin doing so before or after using prescription opioids, these authors identified a complete reversal from the 1960s. Almost all people who initiated heroin use in the 1960s started with heroin, whereas almost all those who began using heroin in the 2000s began with the use of prescription opioids, end quote which is exactly why it is commonly referred to as the start of the second wave. Although the largest producer of heroin since 2001 has been Afghanistan, I want to focus on the business done between Mexico and the United States. The most prolific heroin group in Mexico is the Jalisco Boys. They are building an empire where there has never been one before. The Jalisco Boys are from the town of Jalisco, which is on the coast of the Pacific Ocean, where the opium poppies grow very well. They focus on producing black tar heroin, which is dark and sticky. It is also cheaper to produce and ship. The reason why the Jalisco Boys are so successful is due to the meritocratic business that they have set up. They have kind of become micro-entrepreneurs within this dark market of illegal drugs. They conduct business in a way where there is no middleman. They produce, export, market, and sell all within their own group. They actually started migrating to mid-sized cities, which later became heroin hubs, since these places did not have large drug networks yet. Some examples are Nashville, Columbus, and even Salt Lake City. 
When people in these targeted heroin hub cities could not afford their Oxycontin prescriptions anymore, or their docs weren't giving them what they wanted, people started to go to heroin. The Jalisco boys knew this, so they would prey on people who were in and out of methadone clinics and would offer them free samples of their product. They, quote, promoted their system as the safe and reliable delivery of balloons containing heroin of standardized weight and potency, end quote. These boys are quiet but relentless. Because they have complete control over their business processes, they can offer good product, price, and customer service, which means they get steady salaries for their workers and can control the quality assurance of their product. When asked why cartel workers risk killing their own customers, most of them respond by saying, I'm just the supplier, and as long as profits come in, I'm going to keep making it. These mindsets sound a little similar to what Richard Sackler was thinking. Another group in Sinaloa, Mexico, was starting to add fentanyl to heroin to boost its efficacy and potency. Lacing fentanyl into these already very potent drugs was groundbreaking, but in a bad way. So as you have stated before, that the FDA and the government know about the risks of these highly potent drugs, and there seems to not be that much of a change. What about with the legal drugs that come from Mexico? These are usually marketed as street drugs, correct? You would believe that with border regulation and within our past government trying to stop illicit drug trade from Mexico, that there would be a decrease in drug trafficking from Mexico to the United States. But the production and trade of just fentanyl that was seized by border control was fivefold. In 2019, they seized 222 kilograms, and in 2020, 1.3 tons, according to Mexico's defense secretary, Luis Sandoval. This production of heroin connects not only to the demand of the drug here in the streets, but also the amount of money cartels are profiting from these drugs as well. Border control, wall, or more defense has not and will not stop these street drugs from coming in. Hmm. Interesting to see how easy it is to switch to the illegal side of the crisis with heroin and the production of it. However, heroin is not the most common opioid we see in today's news, but it is actually the synthetic drug you just mentioned, fentanyl. How did fentanyl come into this equation? And why did it affect the epidemic so much? Fentanyl marks the third wave of the epidemic, which will touch on both the legal and illegal sides of the drug. So, I know Hannah mentioned this topic a bit in her episode, but I feel that it is important to touch on a more business-oriented perspective. Let's talk about fentanyl's inception. In December of 1960, Dr. Paul Janssen first synthesized fentanyl, which was the most powerful synthetic opioid ever created. It was 50 times stronger than heroin. Now, his name might sound a little familiar. He was actually the founding pharmacist behind Janssen Pharmaceuticals, which later became a subsidiary to Johnson & Johnson. But back to the actual drug. After 20 years of being covered in a protective patent, 1981 marked its expiration date, and the other pharma companies could finally take advantage of this powerful drug. At this point in time, there were two main reasons as to why this insanely powerful synthetic drug would be prescribed. One being that it was given to patients after a serious surgical procedure, and the second being that it was insanely effective for killing pain within the late stages of cancer. Throughout the 1980s, big pharma companies knew that they had to start 
getting creative in order to become leaders of the opioid movement. They knew how powerful it was, so it was crucial for them to capitalize on this industry. They started creating a bunch of different forms of the drug, which included sprays, pills, patches, and even lollipops. Cephalon, one of the key pharmaceutical companies taking advantage of fentanyl, sold a variety of forms of fentanyl, and they had every intention of selling as much as they could. With the movement toward expanded prescriptions started by Purdue, other big pharma companies started pushing fentanyl just as hard as weaker opioids. In 2006, only 1% of lollipop prescriptions were written by oncologists, which brings me back to my earlier statement on people with subjectively defined chronic pain. Many non-chronic patients were prescribed the drug when it was not necessary for their pain level. One statistic found that 55.4% of patients who were prescribed fentanyl did not have the pain level qualification to take it in the first place. So Purdue kind of set the standards for future production and promotion of opioids? Yeah, the curse of Purdue was infecting the entire market. Another company called Insys was convicted of racketeering where they were bribing doctors through parties, lab dances, and money in order for them to prescribe their drug. Insys was run by Dr. John Kapoor, who at one point was one of the wealthiest people in America. That just goes to show how lucrative this market was at one point in time. When people started changing their views on opioids and reform was happening amongst big pharma in the early 2010s, the presence of another medicine came out, that medicine being Narcan, which also goes by the name of Naloxone. This medicine was created and approved by the FDA to be a quote-unquote overdose reversal. It is an opioid antagonist, meaning it binds to opioid receptors and then can block the effect of the opioid. So, INSYS is prescribing and promoting opioids for years until people start catching on to the dangers and then they start producing the antidote? How can this be okay? Playing both sides of this dark game. Is there any effort to try to remedy the effects it has had on society? Social media has affected how many of us, especially in younger generations, receive information. Many would believe that the burst of receiving information in less than a second can help people stay up to date with current events. If this is so, then why has the opioid crisis been a background topic for not only years but decades? There's been over $33 billion put into anti-drug campaigns since the 1970s, but where's the change? People turn away from seeing one of the deadliest epidemics that America has been affected with, and it is continuing to just get worse. In 2011, the FDA created TERFREMS in an attempt to regulate opioid usage. TERFREMS stands for Transmucosal Immediate Release Fentanyl Products Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy. They attempted to only prescribe to that small group of cancer patients, the people who the drugs are technically made for. How much money have the opioid debts cost this country? To round out our conversation on the business side of the epidemic, I will recount a few very important quotes from an article published by CNN. Quote, Opioid manufacturers have cost the American economy $2.15 trillion, according to a notice of claim filed in bankruptcy court by nearly every U.S. state and many territories. The President's Commission came out and said that in 2016 it was $500 billion effect on our federal government. 
that's half a trillion dollars. In one year, the gross revenues between all of the companies, manufacturers, and distributors that we sue is $1.6 trillion, end quote. Basically, you can see by these quotes that the damages have been astronomical, and we're still trying to repair them to this day. What about recently? Well, in that same article by CNN, they talk about how In March 2021, Purdue Pharma filed a restructuring plan to dissolve itself and establish a new company dedicated to programs designed to combat the opioid crisis, according to court documents filed on March 15, 2021. As part of the proposed plan, the Sackler family has agreed to pay an additional U.S. dollars of $4.2 billion over the next nine years to resolve various civil claims. As a disclaimer, there is a ton of information online about the crisis. I hope our listeners are motivated to learn more about this crisis as neither Hannah nor I have touched on the legal cases behind the epidemic. The Health and Wealthness podcast was created for me, Emily Weigel, and my friend Hannah Kahn's thesis project at Barrett the Honors College at Arizona State University under Dr. Foster Olive and Mr. Thomas Bonfilio. If you have any questions or would like to reach out to us, please email us at healthandwealthnesspodcast at gmail.com.